Morning, everybody. How's it going? I was reflecting, last time I was here, it feels like a while ago, but there was like a ton of snow on the ground. It's like, wow, it's like twice as warm now as it was last month or whenever. Uh, anyways, uh, glad to be back. Last time for this semester. Um, I have exams all this week. I have like six final exams this week, so it's going to be a busy one. Do you guys have finals this week? Or is that later? No, nothing. After Christmas? Okay, nice. Okay, well, enjoy. Enjoy the peace, love, and hope of Christmas while you can. Uh, we've been talking about uh, how God equips us as Christians and gives us tools to deal with the negative emotions and feelings that we deal with in life. We've talked about how uh, psychologists have really grouped every emotion we feel into five emotions, four negative, one positive. Uh, we've dealt looking at shame, sadness, and fear. And today we're looking at anger as the fourth negative emotion that we encounter in our lives. Uh, the fifth one, of course, being happiness. And the best way to increase our overall happiness in life is by de decreasing the presence of these four negative emotions. And graciously, God gives us tools uh, that the world doesn't have. Because God is the God of all truth. He knows what's best and he equips us to deal with these. Uh, we're looking at anger today, which I think is a really, really important subject because anger is probably one of the most destructive forces in our lives. Uh, anger has the greatest ability to suck the joy out of your life and out of your family as probably anything else. It's one of the greatest destroyers of marriages. It's one of the greatest destroyers of sibling relationships, one of the greatest destroyers of parent-child relationships, one of the greatest destroyers of friendships. Maybe you could even say the, one of the great destroyers of nations. Anger, hatred, all these accompanying elements uh, cause it to be incredibly destructive. And so because of that, I really hope that you'll listen closely today and try to think about how we can root out anger out of our own lives. Uh, even Proverbs tells us to make no friendship with a man given to anger. It says not to be friends with an angry person lest you learn his ways and become like him and destroy your own soul. Anger is destructive even to the point of our very own souls. And do you remember when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, you know, you've heard it said to not commit murder, but I tell you that if you're angry with your brother, it's like you've committed murder in your heart. And he says, the one who's done this, or even says to his brother, you fool, is in the danger of hellfire. Uh, really wild, strong words there. So we need to be really aware of anger in our lives. And here's the problem, is that most of us are fairly tolerant of anger up to a certain point in our lives. Most of us actually live with significant amounts of anger in our family that we're used to, and there's a certain level that we're tolerant of. It's almost as if your room was flooding, and it's like, well, as long as it's not above my ankles, you know, we can walk continually in this ankle-deep water and be fine. And what I want to really impress on your minds today is the idea that we need to have a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to anger. We can't be okay to let anger have any place in our lives. And our goal ought to be to completely root out anger. Zero tolerance policy for anger. And so if we're going to do that, we have to be able then to recognize what anger is in our lives and what anger looks like. And we're often aware of the bigger, more extreme forms of anger, but there's many different shades of anger. 
Anger has many different forms from the mild to the extreme. Uh, di different shades, uh, you know in like art class where you have to get all the different types of pencils, like you, you have your HB or your B plus or whatever, and they all create different darkness of lines in the graphite. And so, you know, you try the shades like this one's dark, this one's light, um, but they're all pencil, they all make the same markings. And this is like, there's some forms of anger that are darker and clearer, others are lighter and harder to detect, but they all mark us and they all mark our soul and they all blot our soul, and we want to be people of joy, and joy does not exist very well alongside anger. So here's maybe just a couple, maybe four categories or shades of anger you could look at. Um, starting with the most extreme, we think of something like rage. This was enraging, that thing was infuriating. And um, this is like an out of control anger. This is where it's like your brother comes up and while you're just resting, reading at home, like snaps at the back of your neck with an elastic band or something, and just like immediately uncontrolled, it's like, I'm going to go get him. Uh, no person, these are definitely no personal examples today coming from me, but um, uh, that, that, that might be rage. There's an intent to injure the offending party. Uh, maybe a, a level down is just what we call normal anger, this really strong displeasure, a strong emotion. Um, like maybe when it's like you come home and realize that your sibling's been using your iPad and downloaded all these dumb games that are slowing it down. You're like, what are you doing? Oh, why do you do that? That's so annoying. Um, it kind of provokes this uprising in us, that we rise up. Um, an another shade down maybe, uh, and these last two are ones we don't think about as much. Uh, frustration. Frustration is just a slightly more mild form of anger. Uh, you might experience frustration in you know, a scenario where it's like, you've started working on a project trying to get a head start because you know it's coming up, and then your teacher changes the requirements and makes it way easier, and then you're like, what, but I like, was doing all this work and I already had a head start, and now it's changed, it's like, ah, oh, there's this, this underlying frustration. And often this, this results more often in like complaining to others than actually seeking to get revenge against the actual person. Uh, frustration is a form of anger. All types of frustration are types of anger. And lastly, uh, slight anger we call annoyance. Being annoyed is actually a type of being angry. And I think we often overlook this and don't realize this. Irritation, irritability, being annoyed is a form of anger. And we need to be committed to actually rooting out all of these. We, we can't be okay with letting ourselves live in a state of frustration. We actually want to even grow to the place where we're unannoyable. Uh, someone asked a prominent Christian speaker one time, what's the mark of a mature Christian? And he, he said, I think it's someone that just isn't offended. Someone who doesn't get um, easily to rise up in response to someone. And so if we want to root out anger, we have to root out all shades of anger. And starting to notice the small forms of anger is what trains you to be able to be a person of peace and a person of joy. Uh, because what, like, what is the response of anger? What, the response of anger is basically, in all its forms, is some idea of I've been wronged. I've been made to feel some sort of detriment to my personal well-being or happiness. And so maybe that comes from you feel like someone's personally attacked you, or maybe they've physically attacked you. But even down to uh, the smallest point when you're like, want to quickly take a note, and the pen's not working, and you get mad, it's like, why is this stupid pen not working? You throw the pen. Um, it's almost as if, like, this pen has wronged me. This pen has made a personal offense. How dare this pen not work when I want it to work? Or how dare the printer stop working when I have an assignment I have to print off this morning? You know, printer frustration is a real frustration. Um, 
But it's weird, even an inanimate object, we can kind of feel like, how dare this printer not work at the moment I need it to work? And that's kind of what anger is like in all its forms. There's almost always this idea of, how dare you? That's not right. How dare you change the assignment? How dare you take my things without asking? How dare you make me late? And it's this rising up to vindicate ourselves. And this self-vindication, uh, generally an anger takes two different forms. You might think of active anger, we'll call it, and then passive anger. Active anger is this idea of, I'm going to make someone else pay for the wrong they've done to me. And this is usually immediate and in the moment. So this is um, whether with our voice to yell at someone or uh, cutting words or even physical violence. Or, but it could even be like a rolling of the eyes or a contortion of the face or the slamming of the door. These are all responses that aims to tell someone, I do not like what you just did to me and you're going to know it. This is an active anger response. But sometimes there's also a passive anger response. We don't rise up in the moment, but we reflect on it afterwards and mull over the wrongdoing someone did us and feel that little bit of bitterness or even hatred in our hearts. It's like, how dare they do that? Can they, do they even know who I am? Do they even know what I deserve? I don't deserve that. That was so unfair. And it's almost as if this passive response is not just making someone pay, but almost like a holding them in our, in our, in our debt. It's like, they owe me for that. I'm above them. And they, maybe I'm not going to make them pay, but I'm going to at least think about it enough so that I feel some sort of self-satisfaction that they're in my debt. An active response and a passive response. And there's a lot more we could say here, but um, we'll get to these in a bit. I want to give you some key indicators to watch out for for each of these. Um, but first, why is anger wrong? Well, fundamentally, anger is opposed to love. When we're called to love our neighbor as ourself, anger is, is an act of unlove. Um, like we said, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, anger is actually um, the root form of murder. It's murder in our heart towards someone. And even though we think we just want to say a comeback to someone that's wronged us, that's actually a murderous intent. And if that grew and flowered, flowered who, who knows what that could even become? And so, in that sense, we'd say anger is opposed to the sixth commandment, to not kill. But anger is also opposed to the fifth commandment about honoring authorities, because what anger does is it takes authority into our own hands and says, I will make someone pay. So, like, you know, as a kid, when the classic thing is your parents are like, why did you hit your brother when they did that? If you had come to me as the parent, I could have appropriately punished but when we take matters into our own hands, we're saying, no, I reject that you're the proper authority here. I need to take the authority because I will mete out justice in a just way because I don't trust you to be just. And this is what we're doing every time to God when we get angry and punish people with our anger is that we're saying, Lord, I don't trust you to deal with this person appropriately and I don't trust, trust the authorities you've put in place to deal with this person appropriately, whether it's the authority of your parents to deal with siblings, teachers to deal with students, the government to deal with criminals. Uh, so honor's also, anger is also against the fifth commandment in that we're taking authority that God hasn't given us to punish and do justice into our own hands. Okay, that's why anger is wrong. It's opposed to love and it usurps God's authority. Okay, two um, indicators for active and passive anger, one each. Okay, so this first one I think is, this could potentially, if you listen to this and follow us, this might be one of the most helpful things you will learn, I hope. 
Okay, so active anger, one of the key indicators here is that of a raised voice. When your voice is raised, and obviously we're not talking about like you have to yell to the basement to call people up for dinner or call people outside or you're laughing and joking, okay? Obviously, uh, we know what an angry raised voice is. When your voice is elevated, that is almost always a sign that there's some level of anger going on in your heart. Because anger elevates, it turns on our adrenal system, it makes us, you know, whether red in the face or teeth clenched, but we immediately have a response to raise our voice. And so what I would really love for you guys to be able to learn to think about is to start being able to notice anger in your heart by the symptom of a raised voice. Whether it's talking to your siblings or parents, if you are in a state where you're feeling like you are raising your voice or needing to raise your voice, that is a sign of anger. And if you can make a commitment to seek to be a person that does not raise their voice, but can maintain composure and can be calm even in angry situations, that actually makes you like a far more powerful person, you could say. It's strength. It takes greater strength to keep anger under control. Um, Proverbs 15.1 says that a gentle answer turns away anger, but harsh words stir up anger. And one of the biggest problems in our families, and one of the biggest problems in your future families, is this idea of escalation. And what anger does is it escalates other people's anger. And so when you raise your voice, the other person raises their voice. And then you raise your voice more. And it can go around the whole room, into the whole family, until everyone's yelling at each other. And it's just not an atmosphere conducive to peace. But if you refuse to escalate yourself in anger, if you refuse to meet uh, volume with volume, but to maintain composure, that actually helps um, de-escalate situations and avoid wrath. It's this idea of meekness or gentleness. Uh, you can kind of think of it as like absorbing the blow. Uh, did you ever do it with like your siblings where you'd grab a bunch of the pillows of the couch and hold them in front of you and be like, punch me as hard as you can. And then they punch like, haha, you're like, it's absorbing all the pillows. Uh, that's kind of the thought where it's like you absorb the impact of the wrongs other people do to you. Or as opposed to if you had like a really cruel sibling, maybe they like tried to sneak a board up their shirt and they're like, punch me in the stomach. I can take it. And it's like, when it's a hard, not soft to absorb, that hurts back. And it creates just this back and forth tension. But if we can be meek people who absorb, absorb the wrongs other people do to us, that actually gives us greater strength. So be aware, and keep, take this as an indicator, the raised voice. Um, have it as a commitment in yourself and in your future households to not have a place where people raise their voices in anger. Because if you can learn to control that, it's not everything, but that'll deal with a significant portion of escalation. Make sense? Okay, secondly, passive anger. One of the signs that we're dealing with a passive anger, which we often call bitterness, we often call it bitterness, is that of replayed thoughts. So if we had raised voices, this is replayed thoughts. When maybe you didn't respond to someone at all, but you keep thinking about what they did to you throughout the day. It's like, a, like an earworm. It's just stuck in there. It's just like, what were they meaning when they did that? Did, did they really want to contradict me that harshly? Why would they do that? And this replaying of thoughts we almost use to like soothe ourselves or satisfy ourselves in a sort of weird way. And it's kind of like we feel better by wallowing in the fact that we were wronged and that we're above them. We kind of mentioned this earlier. Um, and so instead of making them pay, this is trying to hold them in our debt. It's saying they owe us. 
And I could call them out on it at any point. At any point, I could remind them of the debt they owe me because of the wrong they did me. And so you keep it in your back pocket to save for when you really want to make them pay their debt. But you kind of get a satisfaction just by knowing that you can hold them to that. You can call them out on it. And there's um, a verse in Ephesians 4. The end of Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 talks a little bit about this. Because the way we release people from our debts is by forgiveness. That's a way to look at what forgiveness is. It's releasing someone to say, I'm not going to hold this over you anymore. I'm not going to hold hateful thoughts towards you. I'm not going to hold bitter thoughts towards you. And I'm not going to bring this back up in ways that will try to make you pay me. Ephesians 4.31-32 says, Let all bitterness, that bitterness of heart, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We can forgive others because God forgives us. And do you remember that parable where Jesus tells the master that forgave the debt of 10,000 talents to the service? Servant, something he could never pay. And he's released from this incredible burden. And then he goes and starts strangling someone who owes, owes him a way smaller amount. He's like, pay me what you owe, pay me what you owe. And we do that. We want to make people pay what they owe when we've been forgiven for our greatest of debts. And so if we counteract raising our voice by learning gentleness and meekness, we counteract this replaying of thoughts and holding people in debt by truly forgiving them. And what that means in both situations, it's releasing them to God. Instead of punishing someone, we release them to God knowing in Romans 12 where it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We trust God to do justice. And the unbeliever doesn't have that. They can't trust that justice will truly be done to someone who's wronged them. Because they don't have a concept of final justice. But we know that when someone's wronged us, we can release them to God because God will do what is right. And similarly, we can forgive people because we've been forgiven. We actually have a model and an example of total and final forgiveness. We can release their debt. So raised voices, replaying thoughts, zero tolerance policy for anger. I want you guys to really come away from here being like, I want to be so committed to having no anger in my life. Um, and I'd be remiss if we didn't take a minute just to think of how incredible is it that God doesn't treat us the way we treat others? Imagine if God exacted punishment on us immediately every time we sinned against him. Every time we wronged him, yet God does not respond to us in anger. His name is the one slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God doesn't vindictively punish his children because Christ was punished. Christ took the payment for all our wrongdoing. He took the wrath of God that God now can look on us with favor, look on us with patience, look on us with kindness. God does not immediately, wrathfully, responsively inflict anger on his children. But neither does God hold us in debt for the things we've done. Because God has released us from all that accumulated wrongdoing that he could hold over us at any point. And oftentimes we actually, you guys feel this, like God is holding your sins of the past over you. And they're hanging over your head and they might almost crash on you at any moment. But we need to re remember, just as God punished Christ for our sins, through him we then find forgiveness 
for all our sins. And freedom from that weight, freedom from the crushing condemnation of our own conscience, because Christ bore the penalty that we can also have forgiveness. And therefore, God only has stores of mercy over our head, clouds of mercy that break with blessings, new mercies every day, fountains of mercies through Christ. I just want to end with this verse, um, one we might not think of often, but it's at the end of the prophet Micah. And he says this in Micah 7, 18 and 19, who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion? He does not hold his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast our sins to the depths of the sea. That's, the true, for, that's true for every child of God. Sins vanquished. Sins dropped to the bottom of the sea. Never to be remembered again. Never to be held against you. No punishment left to be exacted upon you because our Lord and Savior bore it all in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So let's be people of joy and love who can forgive one another, who can take a blow without becoming angry in return and who are ready to be people who have peace in our relationships even as we have peace with God. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we praise you that there is such love for your children, that the wrath of God has been taken by the Son, that he became sin, that we might have his righteousness, that Christ became poor, that we might become rich and be children of your favor. So Lord, help us be Christ-like, help us to be like God, in that we can forgive our enemies, and that we don't need to take vengeance in our own hands, but let us entrust everyone that does wrong to us to you, Trust that you will do what is right. You will carry out eternal justice and that we can forgive as we've been forgiven. So help us to be like Christ. Help us to love as you love. Help us to forgive as we've been forgiven. For Christ's sake, amen.